Good afternoon, everyone. I would uh, like uh, to welcome all of you to the second of the President's uh, lectures this year. Uh, these le this lecture series was created over four years ago to give all of us who live in the Princeton community, whether we work or study or live in the community, uh, an opportunity to hear our own colleagues. Uh, as you know, this university has an extraordinary collection of individuals, uh, and uh, often they go off and give lectures at other universities, and we never have a chance to hear them ourselves. And if the turnout today is not a perfect indication of how necessary a lecture series focused on our own faculty is, I don't know uh, what more we need to persuade ourselves. Uh, I do want to take the opportunity to let you know that the third lecture in the series is going to be given by Catherine Newman, uh, the professor of sociology and the Woodrow Wilson School, on April the 10th uh, next spring. And I hope to see many of you at that lecture as well. Now, to introduce today's speaker, I have asked his colleague, C.K. Williams, to say a few words in his honor. Charlie is lecturer with the rank of professor in the Council of Humanities and the program in creative writing. The author of nine collections of poetry, he is the recipient of multiple awards, including the 2000 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for Repair, the 2003 National Book Award for The Singing, the 1987 National Book Critics Circle Award for Flesh and Blood, I'm going to go on for a long time, so just stay calm. <laughs> I know, he's saying I've done enough. Uh, the 1998 Penn Booker Career Achievement Award in Poetry, the 1999 American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature, and most recently, in case you thought he was sloughing off, the 2005 Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, which is one of the highest honors given to American poets. It gives me a great pleasure to introduce C.K. Williams. In a moment, I'm going to make what might seem to be the simplest and most forthright statement about Paul Muldoon and his work. Most of you in the audience won't realize what a relief it's going to be for me to be able to say what I'm about to say, because most of you won't know how qualified judgments usually have to be in the world of aesthetics, and of how much in the world of poetry appraisal can be contaminated by literary politics of one sort or another, by cronyism, ambition, by the general overinflation of reputation and a devaluation of standards of appreciation. <laughs> it can be depressing sometimes to find even oneself tempering the expression of one's own real judgment about a poet's work in the interest of what finally comes down to a sort of neighborliness, the feeling that the plight of poets is so fraught anyway, why would one ever say anything that might threaten any single poet's reputation or self-esteem? <laughs> so I won't have to do any of that in saying what I'm going to say. I won't, in other words, again, to my relief, have to fib. It's a double pleasure to be able to say what I'm going to say, because Paul is such a true and loving friend, and as we all know, a colleague of seemingly limitless energy and generosity. What I have to say then is this, that Paul Muldoon is a great poet. Period, no ifs, ands, or buts. Paul Muldoon is a great poet. It's occurred to me to wonder how many of the many, many poets I've known in my life to whom I'd apply that term I'll just say that I would need about a hand and a half, perhaps, to account for them. Paul has won every major award in poetry in the United States, in Ireland, and in the United Kingdom, the Pulitzer, the T.S. Eliot Prize, and, and frankly, one can't keep track of them all. Given the vagaries of taste and the sometimes maddening arbitrariness of prize giving, this doesn't in itself mean much in determining what I mean by greatness, I know not a few poets who've won everything in sight, but to whom I'd never apply the term 
but in Paul's case, it does apply. Greatness is an obviously elusive notion, notion tempered always by subjectivity and the variables of historic taste, but it can also be plain as the nose on your face. In Paul's case, I'll begin by pointing out that Paul possesses a technical mastery that's simply unequaled by any poet writing today. I often find myself awed by the ease with which Paul can pull off his enormously complex poetic capers. He's a brilliantly dexterous verbal musician. I once referred to his musical facility as something like Mozart's and a metricist and rhymer of startling originality. I'll also mention the astonishing range of cultural and historical association Paul seems to have at his fingertips, greater than anyone since Pound or Eliot, as well as the depth of feeling in his work and the refusal of easy sentimentality. His poem, Incantata, is surely one of the richest and most moving elegies in the entire tradition. For a long time, Paul has had a poetic style that is utterly original, unmistakably his own. Once, one might have added that it's unlike anyone else's, but Paul has had such an enormous influence on Irish and English poetry that some quite well-established English poets have basically given up their own styles to write <laughs> in what I suppose inevitably are crude simulacry of Paul's. I could go on with delight detailing more of his talents and his accomplishments, but I'll just add one more, which is that Paul is probably our foremost poet of family. The only one I think can be compared to him is Robert Lowell, but Paul takes his poetic meditations on family further than Lowell, delving into the social and cultural and historical past of not only his own Irish family, but his wife's Jewish-American background as well. His poem, At the Sign of the Black Horse, September 1999, for example, is a wild dramatization of some of the rather wonderfully unlikely and even shady characters in the family history of his wife, the novelist Jean Corlitz. I hope I haven't embarrassed Paul or anyone else with my incautious enthusiasms. <laughs> I won't have to say what a pleasure it is to introduce him to you, Paul Mulvey. Darling, that's much too nice of you. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat> Thank you very much indeed for that wonderful um, introduction. Great pleasure to be here. Great pleasure to be taking part in this uh, series. Thank you very much indeed, Madam President, for having me. Um, where to begin? I think I'll read a couple of new poems, if I may. Um, this one is uh, a poem called Turkey Buzzards. Um, turkey buzzards, as you know, are quite big in this part of the world. If one looks up at all, there they are. Uh, they began, it seems, a little bit further to the south. For a while they were restricted to the southeastern um, corner of the U.S. But the great uh, expansion of the highway system uh, has, been a ter has been a terrific boon to them. <laughs> and, and indeed, uh, for that very reason, a terrific boon to us, because I think we're all pretty much aware of the, uh, the fact that they, they are the, um, the, garbage, the garbage collectors uh, in, in a much more profound way than even uh, Midco West um, and they are equipped with uh, some uh, extraordinarily effective tools. Uh, for example, as you probably know, they can eat um, uh, animals that have died of rabies and, and be doing quite well, thank you, <laughs> after it. Uh, so this is a poem that's partly about, about as we know somehow, that poems are never quite about what they seem to be about. Though that's something we're trying to, to put an end to. Sometimes, <laughs> some, sometimes they are about only what they seem to be about, with maybe a tiny little extra component. Perhaps a better way of putting this would be that, on one hand, we have the turkey buzzard. On the other, 
we have uh, my sister, who, who, well, that was an unfortunate concatenation. <laughs> um, my sister, alas, 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 um, died earlier this year. And, uh, I mean, in some ways, one can only, you know, the tears and the laughter are close, as you know. That's my thought for today, by the way. Uh, but her death is part of the uh, part of what's going on, I suppose, in the uh, in this poem. So turkey buzzards—they've been so long above it all. Those two petals, so steeped in style, they seem to stall in the kettle, simmering over the time dump, or better still. The neon-flashed, X-rated rump of fresh roadkill, courtesy of the interstate that Eisenhower would overtake in the home straight by one horsepower. The kettle where it all boils down to the thick scent of death. A scent of such renown, it's given vent to the idea buzzards can spot a deer carcass a mile away, smelling the rot as once Marcus Aurelius wrinkled his nose at a gas leak from the great sewer that ran through Rome to the Tiber, then went searching out through the gloam, one subscriber to the other of you, that the rose, full-blown, antique, its no-frills rough, the six-foot shrug of its swing wings, the theologians and the thugs, twin triumphings in a buzzard's shaved head and snood. Buzz, buzz, buzzy. Its logic in all likelihood somewhat fuzzy would ever come into focus. It ever deign to dispense its hocus-pocus in that same vein as runs along an inner thigh to where, to right, the buzzard vouchsafes not to shy away from shite, its mission not to give a miss to a bete noire, all roly-poly, full of piss and vinegar, trying rather to get to grips with the grommet of the gut, setting its tin snips to that grommet in the spray-painted hind's hind gut and making a sweeping, too right, a sweeping cut that's so blasé, it's hard to imagine, dear sis, why others shrink from this sight of a soul in bliss. So in the pink from another month in the red of the shambles, like a rose in over its head among brambles. Unflappable in its belief, its Ararat on which the ark would come to grief. Abjuring that Marcus Aurelius humbug about what springs from earth succumbing to the tug at its heartstrings, reported to live past fifty, as you yet may, dear says. Perhaps growing your hair in requital, though briefly, of whatever tears at your vitals, learning perhaps from the nifty, nay, thrifty way these buzzards are given to stoop and take their ease by letting their time-chastened poop fall to their knees till they're almost as bright with lime as their night roost, their poop containing an enzyme that's known to boost their immune systems, should they prong themselves on small bones in a cerebral cortex at no small cost to their well-being, sinking fast in a deer crypt. Buzzards, getting the hang at last of being stripped of their command of the vortex, while having lost their common touch, 
They've been so long above it all. Please don't think about leaving. There's some water here. <laughs> Would you like some water? Honestly, there's some spare. Is he, is he okay? Oh, dear. Would you like some water? Oh, you got some. Okay. Uh, good. Thank you very much. Uh, where do we see? Well, what I thought I'd do today would be to take a little um, run through some of my poems from right the way through, poems that feature horses. Since there is, after all, a title for this lecture, you know, well, we've heard again and again the, the, the story of the title it's given in a moment of panic. Uh, in the horse latitudes. The horse latitudes, we'll come back to a little later on. What I thought I'd do would be to take a romp through um, some of my poems that feature horses, and at least we'll have something to hold on to there. Uh, uh, so this is a very early one. I wrote this when I was a student um, at Queen's University, Belfast. And I wrote it about the village I was brought up in, which is called the Moy, on the County Armagh-Tyrone border, about halfway across Northern Ireland. Um, a little village that was most famous for its horse fair. So that in the, um, oh, certainly the 18th and indeed 19th, and indeed into the 20th centuries, um, armies from all through Europe would uh, come over, send over representatives who would buy horses uh, at these great fairs in Ireland, the Moy being one of them. Um, and there was a Moment in 19, somewhere in the 1921 22, when uh, during another Greek uh, Turkish uh, encounter, uh, when the Greek government sent over uh, a deputation to buy some horses, something went amiss. They didn't come back. The local economy, what do we say? Bottomed out? No bottomed up, bellied up, something along those lines. Uh, things were bad in any event. And uh, so there's a little poem about that moment and about, I suppose, again, if it's about anything, um, our capacity for dealing with uh, a situation where, where things have gone badly. So, dancers at the Moy. This Italian square and circling plain, black once with mares and their stallions, the flat black water turning its stones over hour after hour, as their hooves shone and lifted together under the black rain. One or other Greek war now coloured the town blacker than ever before, with hungry stallions and their hungry mares like hammocks of skin. The flat black water unable to contain itself as horses poured over acres of grain in a black and gold river. No band of Athenians arrived at the Moy Fair to buy for their campaign, peace having been declared and a treaty signed. The black and gold river ended as a trickle of brown, where those horses tore at briars and winds, ate the flesh of each other like people in famine. The flat black water hobbled on its stones with a wild stagger and sag in its backbone. The local people gathered the white skeletons. Horses buried for years under the foundations, give their earthen floors the ease of trampolines. It's an image that stems from the tradition in that part of the world, which I think probably goes back to horse worship, um, which was quite popular among the Celts. Um, and why not? Um, <laughs> of uh, burying a horse skull or sometimes the, the rib cage, the skeleton of a horse, under a, a floor. It's one of the reasons, I think, why we, the, the, uh, the horseshoe is considered a lucky item. 
even even today, I guess. Let me read um, a little poem from uh, Moy Sand and Gravel, which was the last uh, book I did, which um, incorporates literally, one might say, horse dumb. It's a poem set in the house that we live in out uh, along the Delaware and Raritan Canal, um, a house built partly in 1750. And in those days, as you know, when they were building a house, they were uh, keen to incorporate into the plaster uh, a great deal of horse hair. It was plentiful. I think they'd probably got past worshipping the horse by that stage. They, and and uh, if one opens a wall, I think in many houses in this vicinity, probably in Nassau Hall, if one were to put a hole in the wall there, um, one would find those little flecks of horse hair. There's a poem about, well, at least featuring, featuring, featuring uh, some of these, uh, uh, some of this horse hair. And um, a poem, a shot, as it were, through a hole in a wall. Um, is, that a little, is that a little machine I hear? I love those. You know what I'm going to do? For my next poem, I'm going to read a poem about one of those little machines. And I'm not sure if there's going to be a horse in it, but, you know, we've got to we establish, as you know, art is about establishing a pattern and then breaking away from it. Um, so this is a series, a series of sensations through a hole in the wall that ends up with an image from contemporary famine. It alluded perhaps to the Irish famine a moment ago. Um, <clears throat> and certainly there's an Irish component in this poem. Bless you. A component also because uh, the canal was built primarily by Irish men, it seems. So here we go. The loaf. It does have a refrain. And you're very welcome to join in if you get the, uh, if you're up to it. So here we go. The loaf. When I put my finger to the hole, they've cut for a dimmer switch. In a wall of plaster stiffened with horse hair, it seems I've scratched a 200 year old itch with a pink and a pink, and a pinky pick. When I put my ear to the hole, I'm suddenly aware of spades and shovels turning up the gain, all the way from Raritan to the Delaware, with a clink, and a clink, and a clinky click. When I put my nose to the hole, I smell the floodplain off the canal after a hurricane. And the spots of green grass where thousands of Irish have lain with a stink and a stink and a stinky stick. When I put my eye to the hole, I see one holding horse dung to the rain. In the hope, indeed, indeed, of washing out a few whole ears of rain with a wink and a wink and a winky wink. And when I do at last succeed in putting my mouth to the horsehair fringed niche, I can taste the small loaf of bread he baked from that whole seed with a link and a link and a linky link. Um, let me go back a little bit through uh, the books on the... Oh, actually, no, I threatened to read something else, didn't I? Yes, and here it is. Uh, this little poem having to do with all of those little beeps and uh, buzzes that surround us these days. The wonderful, I love them. It's called Tithonus, Tithonus. As you know, Tithonus was married to Aurora, Dawn, her, her given name. And uh, the, uh, she, uh, Aurora did a deal with Zeus, his real name, 
which, uh, which involved uh, Tithonus having eternal life. I always have to think about this. She didn't really think enough about it. Eternal life, but not eternal youth. So that as he grew older, um, he, uh, he kind of got crinkly. <laughs> and uh, so this little poem about, about Tithonus and the beepers. I don't know why I keep saying it's about this. Stop that. Tithonus, not the day-old cheap of a smoke detector on the blink, in what used to be the root cellar, nor the hush-hush of all those drowsy syrups against their stoppers in the apothecary chest at the far end of your grandmother's attic, nor the, my sweet, my sweet, of ice branch, frigging ice branch, nor the jinkle jink of your great-grandfather, the bank teller, who kept six shots of medicinal, he called it therapeutiquist, whiskey, like six stacks of coppers stacked against him by the best and brightest of the American Numismatic Society from the other end of 155th Street. Nor the in the silence after the horse Actually, there was a horse in here after all. <laughs> after the horse avalanche, spur spink, heard by your great-great-grandfather, the rebel yeller, who happened to lose a stirrup and come a cropper at the very start of the Confederate offensive in the West, nor even the fatic wittering of your great-great-grandmother. Such a good seat. Whose name was, of all things, Blanche, nor again the day-old cheap of a smoke detector on the blink in what used to be the root cellar, but what turns out to be the 2,000-year-old chirrup of a grasshopper. This was grasshopper time, of course, in these parts. little poem for that. Uh, I don't think there are any horses in this. Oh, there are. Well, there's a cowboy. Maybe not a... No. Here we go. Bob Dylan at Princeton, November 2000. We cluster at one end, one end of Dylan Jim. You know what, honey? We call that a homonym. We cluster at one end, one end of Dylan Jim. If it's fruit you're after, you go out on a limb. That last time in Princeton, that ornery degree, those 17-year locusts hanging off the trees. That last time in Princeton, that ornery degree, his absolute refusal to bend the knee. That la his last time in Princeton, he wouldn't wear a hood. Now he's dressed up as some sort of cowboy dude. <laughs> that last time in Princeton, he wouldn't wear a hood. You know what, honey? We call that disquietude. <laughs> it's that self-same impulse that has them rearrange both the times they are changing and things have changed so that everything seems to fall within his range as the locusts lock in on grain silo and grange. Now, a little uh, short Horsey poem, always a fine thing. I mean, brevity, we find. This is from a previous book. It was called Hay. Horses. <laughs> a sky, a field, a hedge, flagrant with gorse. I'm trying to remember as best I can. If I'm a man dreaming, I'm a plow horse. Or a great plow horse dreaming, I'm a man. Midsummer Eve, St. John's Wort, Spleenwort, Spurge. I'm hard on the heels of the sage 
Chuan Tzu. When he slips into what was once a forge through a door in the shape of a horseshoe. Now, um, I think I'll take, pick up the gorse component there and read a little gorse, horse, <laughs> close. Um, read a few little sonnets that are uh, set in a country where the language is completely, completely broken down. Nothing means uh, what it seems. No one means what he or she says. So I'm assuming it's Ireland. <laughs> but, uh, but I can't be absolutely certain. I can't. I really can't. It's called The Old Country. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll give you a blast of it. Here we go. Where every town was a tidy town, and every garden a hanging garden. A half could be had for half a crown. Every major artery would harden, since every meal was a square meal. Every clothesline showed a line of undies, yet no house was in disability. Every Sunday took a month of Sundays till everyone got it off by heart. Every start was a bad start, since all conclusions were foregone. Every wood had its twist of woodbine, every cliff its herd of fatalistic swine. Every runnel was a Rubicon. Every runnel was a Rubicon, and every annual a hardy annual applying itself like linen to a lawn. Every glove compartment held a manual and a map of the roads, major and minor. Every major road had major road works. Every wishy-washy water diviner had stood like a bulwark against something worth standing against. The smell of incense left us incensed at the firing of the fort. Every heron was a presager of some disaster after which we'd wager every resort was a last resort. Every resort was a last resort with a harbour that harboured an old grudge. Every sail was a selling short. There were those who simply wouldn't budge from the dandy to the rover. Two great English comics. That shouting was the shouting but for which it was all over. The weekend, I mean, we set off on an outing with the weekday train timetable. Every tower was a tower of Babel that graced each corner of a bomb where every lookout was a poor lookout. Every rill had its unflashy trout. Every runnel was a Rubicon. Every cut was a cut to the quick. And the weasel's twist met the weasel's tooth. And Christ was somewhat impolitic and branding as weasels fighting in a hole, forsooth. The petrol smugglers back in the old sod, when a vendor of red diesel for whom every rod was a green rod, reminded one and all that the weasel was nowhere to be found in that same quarter. No mere mortar could withstand a ten-inch mortar. Every hope was a forlorn hope. So it was that the defenders were taken in by their own blood splendor. Every slope was a slippery slope. Every slope was a slippery slope where every shave was a very close shave. And money was money for old rope where every grave was a watery grave. Now every boat was, again, a burned boat. Every dime a dozen rat, a dime a dozen drowned rat, except for the whitrack or stoat, which the very Norsemen had downed pat as a weasel word, though we know their speech was rather slurred. Every time was time in the nick, just as every nick was a nick in time. Every unsheathed sword was somehow sheathed in rhyme. Every cut was a cut to the quick. Every cut was a cut to the quick, one with every feather a feather to ruffle. 
Every Whitrack was a Whitterick. Everyone was in a right kerfuffle. When, from his hob, some hobbledy-hoy would venture the Whitterick was a curlew. Every wall was a wall of Troy, and every hunt a hunt in the purlieu of a domain so out of bounds, every hound might have been a hellhound. At every lane end stood a milk churn, whose every dent was a sign of indenture to some pig wormer or cattle drencher. Every point was a point of no return. Every escape Yeah, every point was a point of no return, where to make a mark was to overstep the mark. Every bray had its own braw burn. Every meadow had its meadow lark that stood in for the laverock. Those Norse had tried fjord after fjord to find a tight wee place to dock. When he made a scourge of small wind cords, Christ drove out the money lenders and all the other bitter enders. And the thing to have done was take up the slack. When, we're getting to it, when was defers, I know you've been wondering about that, when was defers as furs was to gorse? Every hobbledy-hoy at his hobbledy-hobby horse, every track was an inside track. And here comes a horse. Every track was an inside track where every horse had the horse sense to know it was only a glorified hack. Every graining of gratitude was immense, and every platitude a familiar platitude. Every kemple of hay was a kemple tossed in the air by a haymaker in a hay feud. Every chair at the bar dance, a musical chair, given how every paltry poltroon and his paltry dog could carry a tune. Yet no one would carry the can any more than Samson would carry the temple. Every spinal column was a collapsing stemple. Every flash was a flash in the pan. Every flash was a flash in the pan, and every border a herbaceous border. Unless it happened to be an herbaceous border, as observed by the recorder, or recorded by the observer. Every witty stemmed from a willow bow. Every fervor was a religious fervor by which we'd fly the God-forsaken hole into which we'd been flung by it. Every pit was a bottomless pit, out of which every pig needed a piggyback. Every cow had subsided in its subsidy, Biddy winked at Paddy, and Paddy winked at Biddy. Every track was an inside track. Every track was an inside track, and every job an inside job. Every Witterick had been a Witterick, until, from his hobbledy-hob, the hobbledy-hobbledy-hoy had insisted the Witterick was a curlew. But every boy was still one of the boys, and every girl, you girl you, for whom every dance was a last dance, and every chance a last chance, and every letdown a terrible letdown. From the days when every list was a laundry list, in that old country where we reminisced, every town was a tidy town. So, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, one of the tr- troubles with it, writing a poem like that is that it's very hard to get out of it. <laughs> Usually not a great deal of fun is to be had in the business of writing poems. Um, not a great deal, some. Uh, but with a poem like that, too much fun may be had, perhaps. <laughs> anyway, anyway. This is called Why Brun- Brownlee Left. Why Brownlee Left and Where He Went is a mystery, even now. For if a man should have been content, it was him. Two acres of barley, one of potatoes, four bullocks, a milker, 
a slated farmhouse. He was last seen going out to plough on a March morning, bright and early. By noon, Brownlee was famous. They had found all abandoned, with the last rig unbroken. His pair of black horses, like man and wife, shifting their weight from foot to foot and gazing into the future. And this is the title, that was the title of uh, what a book came out in 1980. This was from 1977 and uh, it's called Mules. And I'll read it and then just a couple, a uh, few sections from, uh, from the title poem uh, of this new book, Horse Latitudes. So this is Mules. Began with uh, an image of a, an airlift of mules. An air drop, perhaps more accurately, of mules. Which I'm pretty certain I saw. <laughs> rather, 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 rather than dreamed. Um, we'll see. So here we go. Mules. Should they not have the best of both worlds? Her feet of clay gave the lie to the star burned in our mare's brow. Would Parsons' jackass not rest more assured that cross wrenched from his shoulders? We had loosed them into one field. I watched Sam Parsons and my quick father tense for the punch below their belts for what was neither one thing or the other. It was as though they had shuddered to think of their gaunt, sexless foal dropped tonight in the cowshed. We might yet claim that it sprang from earth were it not for the afterbirth trailed like some fine silk parachute that we would know from what heights it fell. So uh, I'll read a few sections from uh, this sequence of poems, having, which I began uh, just as we, as we went into um, Iraq. And uh, it's a series of poems having to do with battles in which horses <coughs> or mules figured. And uh, I'll, just, I'll read a few of them, uh, if I may. And I just want to say again, um, what a pleasure it is. Thank you very much indeed for having me uh, as part of your series. Great honour. Thank you so much for coming out. I look forward to having a chat with you now uh, at the reception, which will follow immediately. So there's another line. Every reception follows immediately. <laughs> Anyway, we'll see. So it's, it's anyway, here we go. Horse latitudes, and this is called Beijing. Beijing. I could still hear the musicians cajoling those thousands of clay horses and horsemen through the squeeze when I woke beside Carlotta. Life size also. Also, terracotta. The sky was still a terracotta frieze over which her grandfather still held sway with the set square fret saw stencil plumb line and carpenter's pencil his grandfather brought from Roma. Proud fleshed Carlotta. Hypersarcoma. For now our highest ambition was simply to bear the light of the day we had once been planning to seize.
It was clear now through the pell-mell of bombard and basilisk mist, this is Bosworth Field, that the Stanleys had done the dirt on him and taken Henry's side. Now Richard's very blood seemed to have shied away from him, seemed to sputter and spurt like a falcon shearing off from his wrist as he tried to distance himself from the same falchioneer who'd pelf the crime from his blood-matted brow and hang it in a tree. Less clear was how he'd managed not to crack the shell of the pigeon egg the size of a cyst he'd held so close inside his shirt. Blackwater Fort, which if you recall is the river where the moy is built. As I had held Carlotta close that night, we watched some Xenophon embedded with the 5th Marines in the old Sunni triangle make a half-assed attempt to untangle the ghastly from the price of gasoline. There was a distant fanfaron in the Nashville sky where the wind had now drawn itself up and pinned on her breast a Texaco star. Why, Carlotta wondered, the house of tar? Might it have to do with the gross imports of crude oil? Bush will come clean on, only when the tigress comes clean. Almost bit the air, I go back. Brandywine, I crouched in my own little ease by the pool at the Vanderbilt where Carlotta crouched, sputter spot, just as she had in the scanner when the nurse, keen sighted as a lanner, picked out a tumour like a rabbit scut on dark ground. It was as if a fine silt, white sand or silicate, had clogged her snorkel, her goggles had fogged. And Carlotta surfaced like flot to be skimmed off some great cast iron pot as garvel is skimmed off or lees painstakingly drained by turnings and tilts from a man-sized barrel or butt. Badly K. Surrey. Pork barrels. Pork butts. The widescreen surround sound of a massed attack upon the thin red cellulose by those dust <clears throat> or fust or must cells that cause the tears to well and well and well, at which I see him now turning up his nose as if he'd bitten on a powder pack like yet another sad sepoy who won't fall for the British ploy of greasing with ham the hammer or smoothing over Carlotta's grammar. On which, on which bush will come clean? Her grandfather, a man who sees no lack of manhood in the lacrimose. Bull run. While some think there's nothing more rank than the pool that's long stood aloof from the freshet, I love the smell of sweat and blood and see horse dung. Carlotta shouldered like an aqualung as she led me now through that dewy dell and spread her house of tartan waterproof. As we lay there, I could have sworn as I stirred through unruffled thorns that were an almost perfect fit to each side of the gravel pit where she and I tried to outflank each other, I traced the mark of a hoof or horseshoe in her fontanelle. Brunkhorst's fruit. I traced the age-old traduction of a stream through a thorn thicket as a gush from a nightingale. Skeffington's daughter. Skeffington. Attention. Shun. Attention. Shun. 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 We lay in a siding between two rails and watched an old white horse cross the picket of himself and trek through the scrub to drink from an iron hoop tub with the snore snort of a tuba. His winkers and belly band said scuba, while his sudden loss of suction 
Carlotta knew meant a pump whose clickets failed in the way a clicket fails. Byzantine. As I was bringing up her rear, a young dragoon would cock a snook at the gunners raking the knob of high wood. Tongue like a scaldy in a nest, hadn't a Garibaldi what might lie behind that low-level throb like a niggle in her appointment book. Dust, fast, must, the dragoon nonplussed by his charger taking the rust, and despite her recalcitrance, Carlotta making a modest advance when the thought of a falchioneer falling to with his two-faced reaping hook now brought back her grandfather's job. Burma. Her grandfather's job was to cut the vocal cords of each pack mule with a single swift excision. A helper standing by to wrench the mule's head fiercely to one side and drench it with hooch he'd kept since prohibition. Why? Carlotta wondered. That fearsome tool. Was it for fear the mules might bray and give their position away? At which I see him thumb the shade as if he were once more testing a blade and hear the twofold snapping shot of his fourfold brass-edged carpenter's rule and give away their position. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I would want to welcome everybody to a reception outside where you will have an opportunity to speak with Paul. Thank you all for coming.